I was surprised, uh, disappointed. I'm not sure what my emotion is that we got very little feedback about the fact that Dithering has new show art. Did it work? <laughs> That's my concern. Nobody said anything. And now I'm worried that in all of the various clients out there in the people's pockets that nobody sees the new art. Well, it turns out that uh, this is one of the many things that we figured out while testing is, you know, I think I mentioned before that there are a lot of assumptions made about podcasts by sort of podcast players that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the RSS spec or podcasts as they were defined. So I'm actually uh, looking at a popular podcast player and it has indeed not updated the show art. (laughs) So because people built these systems and they'll like cache the show art like, oh, a show will never, ever change its show art. And so uh, it will probably it'll, it'll update eventually. Who knows when, whenever they flush their cash. I'm surprised that we're pushing the clients on this because it seems so obvious that as especially as podcasts become more mainstream, that for newsy type podcasts that you would use the podcast art the way that like newspapers use their front page or magazines, you know, use the cover magazine's probably a better analogy you know that every issue of a weekly magazine has a new cover because it works for everybody well there's multiple levels here and i, I think i can kind of understand the perspective of this sort of podcast players so level one is like the art for the show as a whole right and that's the one that most a lot of podcast players assume never changes the second one is like the podcast on a per episode basis that comes in the rss feed and that's what shows up in like the list of shows you know, I can understand the thought that the high-end, top-level short won't change because people want to, you know, like the New York Times, like, logo doesn't change. And and what we're doing, if people can go to dithering.fm if they haven't seen their podcast player, is we're definitely retaining the real look and feel and also the the, the dithering logo type that Futura, you know, looks is, is the same, but we're just kind of putting it in a few different places that look kind of the same, but a little different. And, you know, this idea of having different months be different seasons, it's kind of fun. It's fun to play around with. Again, Dithering FM, you can both see the new one and also see sort of the history of the old ones. But the the assumption that the high level one will not change, I can kind of understand it. The one that's frustrating is the one that on a per episode basis, the assumption that it doesn't yeah. change, right? You can change it in the MP3, but if you change it in the RSS feed, a lot of a lot of players don't pick up on that. Yeah, and I, I'll just make the magazine analogy again, you know, and and to me, just off the top of my head, two US magazines that really spring to mind as having an iconic cover look are Time magazine, which always has like that red frame. And the New Yorker, which always commissions custom illustrated art for the cover, yet always looks like the New Yorker. I, I don't understand why that isn't done more in podcast land. And and I feel like it's a chicken and egg problem. You know what I mean? Like if more podcasts were trying to do creative stuff with dynamic changing artwork on a per episode basis, it would put pressure on the clients to support it. But if the clients already don't support it, then who's going to try it? Us, I guess. Yep. <laughs> well, in, in our sort of quixotic mission to uh, right. to extend what a podcast. Actually, that's another point of follow up. Is we thought at the beginning, oh, no show notes, or no, you know that this is just a an audio product. Well, we've had to backtrack that a couple, a little bit. What was interesting, kind of surprising to me is some folks came back to me and said, oh, where are the show notes? I'm like, they're in your podcast player. They're like, oh, no, I went to the website and clicked on the link, yeah. and there, there, it wasn't a clickable link. Like, oh, yes. So one, we will have show notes. 
the show notes are a part of the podcast in your podcast player. There, there's, the website is just there to be a, a place to get the podcast feed. Right. This is a podcast. It lives in your podcast player. Yeah, and I don't want to turn this into a developer or you know an XML developer podcast um so i'll try to keep it super super brief on this digression but it really does kind of show when you think about it the way that rss while really really good a good match for podcasting in general and it's not surprising that it's the format that was used to sort of bootstrap the concept wasn't designed with podcasting in mind it was something that was more about like blog posts and i'm not that that might even be diminishing the general nature of rss but a, a blog publishing an rss feed of posts is a much more natural fit at the semantic level of what an rs you know the definition if you had just look at the raw xml of an rss feed than a series of mp3 files that you intend to download and listen to you know, and it's it's not that it's a bad fit. It's just not quite a perfect fit. And you run into these, that's where you run into these problems where you can specify an image for the feed as a whole. You can specify an image for the episode in the RSS, and you can put an image in the actual embedded in the MPEG-3 file. Which the last one is most players do pick up on. Not right. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. It's funny. Apple Podcasts doesn't right. support anything, but they do pull the feed directly. So there's no caching right. problem. So it's like it both gives and it takes right. away. But anyhow, we, we we have talked enough about ourselves. Let's talk about something a little less controversial uh, mm. than paid podcasts. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. So you, uh, I wrote a long piece about not Facebook in, it was a part of it but about the George Floyd thing and growing up in the Midwest. And right. I think it really built on what we talked about on Monday, partly the role that technology played, but also just, you know, one of those roles is showing things that have probably been happening for a long time. And people like me could grow up in a city like Madison and be totally unaware of those sorts of things. And Facebook has tr played a tremendous positive role, I think, in that regard and sort of shining lights on things. But that's not why Facebook is in the news. <laughs> Facebook no. is in the news because a lot of people, including a lot of Facebook employees, are objecting to the fact that Facebook is not taking down uh, some posts by President Trump that Twitter did did take action on. Is, it, is that a? I think that's a fairly neutral summary of of the situation. Yeah, I I feel like and and while there's clearly and, and it's internal dissent and and there are Facebook a few Facebook employees who have resigned or or quit in you know a few very few publicly. Um, but they've gotten a lot of publicity for it. There's a few who haven't quit per se, but have tweeted their opposition to the policy. And then the New York Times had a story, you know, with inside access. Obviously, there was an all hands meeting, you know, company wide where Zuckerberg took questions from employees. And it was apparently very, very strongly opposed to the way, you know, internal to Facebook employees are are opposed to the way they've handled it. I'm not quite sure that everybody is saying that, that what they want is for Facebook to have taken these posts down, but that they should have done something. Twitter showed, you know, the fact that Twitter is now held up as the counterexample in all of this. Twitter did this, but but Facebook did effectively nothing. All that Twitter did was label them. Although I guess with the second one, it was more than a label. It was sort of a, a like a almost obscuring. like yeah, obscuring it. Like you have to click through to get to it. But they still, they right. didn't alter it or take it down. They put metadata on top of it. 
What's interesting about that and about Twitter being held up as a positive example is that New York Times story, and I actually included a screenshot of this from the story, included both Trump's posts on Facebook, which are just reprints of his tweets, and also the tweet in question exposed. So it kind of raised the question, what's the goal here? Because the tweets themselves and the content is actually being spread even more by virtue of these stories, right? right? And so at this point, what did Twitter accomplish? Again, I found, I mean, I feel like I sound like Mark Zuckerberg here. I found it very, the content's abominable. I did find it very bad. And I, that's why I wrote that very long piece today. And so please reference that if you, if you, have, not, if you have not seen it. But given the fact that it's out there, what is Facebook taking it down? What, what is it other than sort of a political statement that we don't approve of this, right? And I believe that Facebook doesn't approve of that. But then you get into really questionable territory about this company making political judgments about what is or isn't acceptable, led by an unaccountable chief executive. I, I feel like there's not enough cognizance of the very real sort of trade-off that's entailed in a lot of these sort of demands. Yeah. And I feel like where it's boiled over and spiraled out of Zuckerberg's control this week is the idea that they've done nothing. And we can argue about the effectiveness of what Twitter has done in the last week, but at least they've done something. And at least, you know, Twitter isn't facing this internal revolt that Facebook is from employees because at least they did something. And the fact that it infuriated Trump to the degree that he issued a, a you know a, a re- truly remarkable executive order again is it effective? It's they're still there. Everybody who saw them saw them. The news coverage only escalates the message. But at least in terms of symbolically saying this is not okay, Twitter and and Jack Dorsey have something to stand on there, where Zuckerberg doesn't. And I thought that the the one of the you know, a young engineer who quit, you know, and he worked on the team that was identifying like misinformation and stuff like that. But, you know, what he said was that he, uh, paraphrasing it, but that where he can't do it anymore is that the moving of the goalposts. And that's what I, I quoted Zuckerberg the other day when he testified before Congress in October and said, well, if anybody, including a politician, said something that was an incitement to violence or promoted violence or something, that you know that we would take down. And it's hard not to see it as moving goalposts, that as every line they draw in the, the sand, Trump moves past it, and they just draw another line in the sand further down. And that's where I think Zuckerberg has gotten himself in trouble, is I feel like maybe even in October, I don't think he lied per se, but I think he was thought he was drawing a generous enough line that even Trump wouldn't cross. And you know what? He did. And now Zuckerberg doesn't know what to do. You just captured like the moment, right? He thought he drew a generous enough line that not even Trump would cross. And within a few months, he crossed it, right? I think that that there's there's something very profound about that observation. The question was in, or his answer was in response to a question from a very well-known congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. And I've watched the video just to not even get the words. It almost seems like it was relief on Zuckerberg, where it's like, okay, there's a line I can draw. You know, they're they're trying to paint me in a corner here, ask me where I can draw a line. And, And his response on violence and 
tampering with the vote or voter suppression, it seemed to me like he was saying, sure, of course, we would draw the line at that and take a post-it by that, even if it's from a politician. Because it's it, it really does seem to me like I can almost see it. I mean, and he's a hard, hard person to read, at least in his public persona. But it really does seem like he's thinking, there's a line I can draw in the sand where I don't have to worry about it. And here we are seven months later and the line's been crossed. Yeah, I, I think that that's very well put. I agree with you. And I agree with that engineer about the moving of the goalposts. My only response is I think the mistake by Zuckerberg was in that congressional testimony. Like he should have, he should have been honest then. And because I don't think it's sustainable in the long run to be picking and choosing which ones you're going to fact check and which ones are crossing the line or not. The reality is, is we, we, the check we have on the president is the election. And I think that was the thinking behind Zuckerberg's response was that's why it's important that we do check the voter suppression things along those and and all that. But the, the truth is, is that Trump's responses are fact checked more than any public utterances of anyone ever, right? We're not suffering from a lack of fact-checking. What we're suffering from, I think the critics of Zuckerberg would say, is a lack of Facebook sort of making a, a, taking a moral stand and doing something just to do something. It, but the problem there is you have to think about what's next, like what's down the road. And, and down the road of a large social network making decisions of this nature in an unaccountable way is, is bad, you, like, you can see the allure, but it is worse than leaving it up to there being more debate and a check on election. Now, when we get to other countries with no elections and no democratic process, it gets a lot even more fuzzier. But that's just a, a more reason to be very wary of this do something just to do something sort of approach when there's so many second and third and fourth order effects. Yeah. And the other thing that's, you know, be careful what you wish for is the just extraordinary consolidation of attention into a few social networks and the two most popular of which are both owned by Facebook. And it's, you know, everybody had these dreams that the internet, the world of the internet would be more diversified and there'd be a thousand voices, you know, as opposed to the big three networks that I grew up with on TV and if anything, it's more consolidated now in social networks than it ever was in network TV when there were only three networks. But they could shift the standards of content around and say that's just how it's done. There was no one person in charge of all TV news who bore the brunt of it the way the Zuckerberg does. Yep. I think and that's the best response or the best objection here is, okay, sure, we don't want one person making all those decisions, but ultimately the way to solve that is to make sure there's not just one person in charge. Right. And it you know it even comes into play with Zuckerberg's bizarre by historical standards, but the way it's done now, uh, 60% control over the voting stock. You know, he answers to no one, he, not even a board and not to shareholders. That's right. I, I, I think that's right. Well, that ended up being less contentious than I expected. <laughs> 